I've never watched any of them, but I keep seeing all kinds of adverts coming up in different places for different television series which are about people who have decided to move and live out into the middle of absolutely nowhere in the hope of finding a fortune buried in the ground. Whether they're looking for gold, whether they're looking for diamonds, whether they're looking for copper, or another one I just saw the other day, looking for opals, off they go. Uh, they sink everything that they've got into this little piece of dirt in the outback, hoping to make their fortune. Uh, and of course, um, there's a well-known expression grown up from those who are involved in that kind of enterprise because many have thought that they had found that one nugget that was going to change their life forever only to be told they dug up fool's gold and it was worth absolutely nothing. And I just want to consider with you this evening fool's gold versus eternal treasure fool's gold or eternal treasure jesus said do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth why because it's fool's gold it will never accomplish that which you're told it will accomplish. Moth and rust will destroy. Thieves will break in and steal. It is temporary. It is fleeting. It will not last. It will not endure. And the day will come when you're just surrounded by the dirt and that's all you've got left. Fool's gold. I've used this illustration before, but it was quite a few years ago now. I suspect most of you have forgotten it, so I thought I'd reuse it. In 1923, a very significant meeting took place at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. At that meeting were some of the most influential men in the United States of America at that time. What they were meeting to discuss is irrelevant to the illustration, which is just as well, because I don't know why they were meeting, but the meeting took place. But this is who was there. A guy called Charles Schwab. He was the president of the company, which in 1923 was the world's largest producer of steel. Samuel Insull, president of General Electric, which at that time was the world's largest utility company. Howard Hobson, president of the world's largest gas company, AG&D. Arthur Cutton, and he used to trade in wheat doesn't sound much in the UK but if you've seen the plains of America where they grow wheat that's big business Richard Whitney 
president of the New York Stock Exchange. Albert Fall, a member of the cabinet in the presidential office in the White House. Leon Frazier, president of the Bank of International Settlements. He held lots of people's futures in his hand. There's a pun there if you know what I'm talking about, but there you go. Jesse Livermore, the greatest ever speculator on the American stock market, made more money than anybody else. And finally, Ivor Kruger, who was the head of a vast multinational business empire. Nine of the world's financial giants in one place. Men of vast wealth and influence. Many people would assume that these were men who had everything to live for. These men surely were set up for life. These men surely had every security that this world could offer. These men surely could buy every and any entertainment and comfort. Most of them came from very humble beginnings. They were what we would call self-made men. We tend to be impressed by that phrase, don't we? Oh, self-made man or woman, but these happen to be men. We like that idea. That I, me, all on my own, with no other help, I can make something of me. Several years ago, very famously, well, if you're into that kind of thing, it's famous, Spike Milligan was receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award for services to the entertainment industry. Depends what you find entertaining, of course. He stepped up to the mic, and instead of reeling off a big, long list of all the kinds of people he wanted to thank, he said, I'm not thanking anyone. I did it all by myself. And, of course, the room just erupted into howls of laughter. Well done, you. We like that kind of thing. Well, first of all, I've got some news for you. There's no such thing as a self-made man. I've got some news for you. The Bible says it's impossible to be a self-made man. It doesn't exist. Romans 11 verse 36, speaking of Christ, of him, through him, to him are all things. Self-made men and women don't exist. It's a fallacy. They exist in our imagination. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. You're, you all are God's handiwork. Now, you might reject that truth, but it doesn't stop it being the truth. You might not live your life according to that truth, but it's still the truth. Proverbs 22. The rich 
and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. There is no such thing as a self-made man or woman. It's a complete fallacy. They don't exist. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, if you're still not convinced. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. 1 Samuel 2, verse 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. There's no such thing as a self-made man or woman. Sorry, the Bible doesn't allow it. Now, you might choose to live your life without reference to God, but that does not mean that you are living independently from him. He's there, and he's having dealings in your life all the time. You might not acknowledge them. You probably never thank him for them, if that's the case. But God is there. So what happened to those nine men? Those self-made men. Those men who had everything. Well, let's roll the clock forward 25 years. It's now 1948. Charles Schwab, president of the world's largest independent steel company. He died bankrupt. And for the last five years of his life, he lived on borrowed money. Samuel Insel, once president of General Electric, he died penniless, abroad, on the run from the authorities. Howard Hobson, he'd been certified insane. Arthur Cutton, the greatest speculator in grain in America, he'd died abroad, insolvent, penniless. Richard Whitney, former president of the New York Stock Exchange, Albert Fall, a member of the, the cabinet in the president's office in the White House. Well, in 1948, both of those men had just recently been released from serving prison sentences. And of the final three, well, by 1948, the remaining three had all committed suicide. Why? They were chasing fool's gold. And they discovered just what fools they'd been. For many of them, their downfall, you won't be surprised to hear, all began in 1929 with the Wall Street crash. And their world came crashing down around them. But you see... These things had been their treasure. These things were where their hearts were. 
these were the things that their lives were completely wrapped up in. Which is why, when it all started to crumble away, they found themselves to be completely in jeopardy, totally vulnerable, with nothing to hold on to. Because they were chasing fool's gold. Building up treasures on earth. Self-made men. No doubt receiving all kinds of acclaim over the years. No doubt being held up as all kinds of example for others to follow and emulate them. 25 years later, they'd lost everything. All treasures on earth are fool's gold. But there is eternal treasure which stands in complete contrast. And in those two verses, that's what Jesus does. He just puts these two contrasting pictures in our minds. Treasures on earth, which will end up nowhere, or eternal treasure, which will last for all eternity. Now, here's a question. Where it says in verse 20 of Matthew 6, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, what does that actually look like in practice? What, what does that mean? What do you actually do? Does the Bible give us any examples of Christian men and women who are laying up treasures in heaven? What's it look like? Well, I actually believe the Bible gives us many examples. And I want you to turn with me to a portion of God's word which you might not immediately have thought of. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And I want to suggest to you that laying up treasures in heaven looks like this. Acts chapter 2. We'll begin at verse 40. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers then fear came upon every soul many wonders and signs were done through the apostles now all who believed were together had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need 
So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Here are men and women, no doubt young people, maybe even boys and girls, who are turning from their sin and putting their trust in Christ and becoming faithful, godly, devoted, humble, serving members of a local church. And they are building treasure in heaven. And what they are doing, they will never lose. And it will see them through all of eternity. What you don't seem to have in that church, recorded for us there in Acts, are a whole bunch of Christians all living their lives with very different goals and very different values and very different aspirations. Their lives all going off at different tangents, left, right and centre. Their being together wasn't just a physical gathering, as important as that is, but it was of a oneness of character and heart and mind in Christ. Serving and loving and living as Christian people. Building treasure in heaven. It seems there were no individuals following separate agendas to all the rest. There was unanimity amongst the whole fellowship. Real like-mindedness which resulted in common behaviours right across the whole church. It seems to me that for these early Christians... Their treasure truly was everything involved with being a Christian. That was where their heart lay. And in all of these activities that are recorded for us in summary there in Acts chapter 2, we, we see there the picture that's presented for us is of the Lord's people giving themselves willingly and gladly to all of these things without question laying up treasure in heaven eternal treasure now we read don't we there that for some of them it meant parting company with those things that presumably they once had counted as treasure some of them had significant possessions that they were able to sell to help and support those who were poor in the church. So there must have been some fairly significant things. And they don't hesitate to part company with these things. But you see, those things that they're selling long ago now in Christ, all of those things ceased to be their treasure. Now, they, they were still in possession of them for a time, but they stopped being their treasure. That's not where their heart is now. And Jesus draws this great distinction between those whose treasure is earthly 
and those whose treasure is heavenly. Where's yours? Where's yours? You've, you've heard me say many times, the Bible in lots of different ways, in lots of different language, with many different pictures, keeps confronting us with the fact that there's only two options. You're either here or you're here. You're either in Christ or you're not. You're either a believer or you're not. You're, neither, you're either in the church or you're out of the church. You're either relying upon earthly treasure or you're rejoicing in heavenly eternal treasure. Which is it for you this evening? And I want to consider with you finally, just for a few moments, where that change takes place. Where, where and how do we actually move from earthly treasure to heavenly treasure? Where does the change take place that that is no longer where my heart is? It used to be, but it isn't anymore. It's here now. Well, I want to turn to two things. First of all, just briefly, in Mark chapter 10, we've got the account there of the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus. And of course, you'll remember there that he's given this instruction that he has to go his way and give, sell whatever he has and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Sell your earthly treasure so that you can have treasure in heaven and come and take up your cross and follow me. And that young man, of course, went away very sad because his possessions were very, very great. Now, of course, it's interesting that this isn't an instruction that Jesus gives to everyone he met. He doesn't say to everybody, you've got to go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. He didn't say that to his disciples. He just said to them, follow me. And later on, we discover they've still got their fishing boats. They haven't sold up. But he gave this instruction to this man. But you see, this man had a particular problem. And this man's problem actually was not that he owned lots of possessions. This man's problem was that his possessions owned him. That was his real problem. His possessions owned him. And his heart was there. And Jesus is saying to him, if you want to even step out on this road, you can no longer have your heart there. It has to be here. And the rich young ruler was not prepared for such a change of heart. And he refused such a change of heart. That was his problem. Of course, Jesus in his infinite wisdom, because he's God, he knows that. And he challenges the rich young ruler in that way very specifically. That rich young, rich young ruler, he's never going to join the Jerusalem church and start doing verse 45 of Acts chapter 2. 
Uh uh-uh. Not my stuff. It's mine. That's his problem, you see. It's just not going to happen. Because that's where his heart is. That's his treasure. That's why Jesus says to him, before you can take a single step, there's this issue that you have to deal with. You see, you have to answer this question in coming to Christ. What is your treasure? And where is your heart? Now you see, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told two very short and very helpful parables about what the kingdom of God is like. You'll know them well. Starts at verse 44 of Matthew 13. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field and then again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price he went and sold all that he had and bought it what's the picture here the picture is here is everything that has been me and my life and there is a doing away with that in order that I can have that. That's the picture, isn't it? This is of such infinite value and worth that I'm ready to forego all of that in order to take hold of this. So you see, that's where it begins at at the moment we lay hold of Christ to say my treasure has changed the affection and direction of my heart has changed it belongs to Christ now have you been there? have you done that? because that's the gospel It's a simple picture. Old treasure, new treasure. Where the heart used to be, where the heart now is. A clear division and a choice to be made. And the issue is not so much about whether or not all of this stuff is in your possession, but does it possess you? Is all that behind you? And are you only looking there? Has all of this old stuff lost its attraction to you now? You no longer rely upon it. You no longer trust it. Everything now is focused on Christ. Surely it must be the case that this extraordinary change in priorities and affections has already taken hold of every Christian in the Jerusalem church. Must that not be the case? Is that not why they can do what they do in verse 45 of Acts chapter 2? Is that not why, without any hesitation, they will gladly get rid of anything that they can in order to help all the others in the church? Because they have a different treasure. They have a different heart. 
How can they so readily let go of their belongings in order to help others in the church? The answer is simple. They don't have to let go because they're no longer holding on to them. They've already let go. They've already experienced Matthew 13, 44 to 46. It's already done. They've already abandoned the old treasure for the new one. We saw Paul last week at the close of 2 Corinthians urge us on to oneness of mind, to think the same thoughts. A big part of that, you know, is that we all really do have the same treasure and that we all really do have the same heart. Is that not what we see in Acts chapter 2? These, these things that come to us in the Bible, those parables that Jesus told, the story of the rich young ruler, these are things, you know, that, well, once you're a Christian, when you get a little bit further along the road, well, maybe you can start to think about these things and see if maybe there's something in those parables that you need to take into account. Now, those things are presented to us in the Word because those things lie at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian at all. Where's your treasure this evening? Where's your heart? Fool's gold? Or that which endures forever?